0: you're listening to the autism weekly podcast each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness acceptance equity access and inclusion if you haven't already subscribe to join the autism weekly family i'm your host jeff skibitzky this week we're joined by thomas w frazier phd a board member of autism speaks and an accomplished autism researcher Dr. Frazier is a professor of psychology at John Carroll University and the executive vice president for virtual and clinical care at Quadrant Biosciences. With over 17 years of experience in evaluation, treatment, and research of autism, Dr. Frazier has published over 130 peer-reviewed papers and delivered numerous conference presentations. From 2017 to 2020, Dr. Frazier served as Chief Science Officer of Autism Speaks, playing a key role in the organization's efforts to promote life-enhancing research breakthroughs. He will continue to guide Autism Speaks as the chair of the Medical and Science Advisory Committee. We're thrilled to have him join us today to share his insights on Child and Family Quality of Life Second Edition. That's the CFQL2 the associated platform to enhance clinical workforce. Tom, welcome to the podcast.
1: Great. Thanks for having me, Jim.
0: Well, Tom, one thing I'd love to be able to do is that this is such a field of passion, and oftentimes people find their way into working within the the autistic community because of past experience or research or just a a thought that that kind of stimulated everything in their growth but what what brought you to the field of autism?
1: My son uh, my son's 19 now when he was uh, two years old he was diagnosed with autism and he also has intellectual disability and so uh, my wife and I really shifted our careers into autism. My wife became uh, a board-certified behavior analyst, and I was already a psychologist, but I shifted my work into autism and really began to focus my career on trying to um, use my skills, particularly around assessment and evaluation, um, to try to improve uh, the lives of people with autism and their families.
0: So, I mean, ultimately, then, it sounds like you've been doing this for over 19 years. Uh, well. the
1: yeah, the field seven, of psychology and yeah, about seventeen years, I guess, full throttle.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've probably seen so much growth in the field, but at the same time, you've probably seen new questions start to arise, and oftentimes these new questions drive us in different directions. But if you were to, if you were to look at going forward. What is what is it that you're hoping to still accomplish as far as broadening the perspective or getting treatment to to match the need of a community? What is what's your goal at this point of your career?
1: Well, I have a few goals. I mean, one of the goals is we'd like to decrease the bottleneck from diagnosis to getting kids into early intervention. Right. So I think that's still a big goal of mine. I think the other big goal that kind of led into this to us connecting was just the fact that we need assessment platforms that allow BCBAs to be great BCBAs and to do great intervention and treatment and and instead of having to, you know, fumble over papers or, you know, make sure that they're getting assessments completed and uh, spending a lot of extra time on authorizations when they'd rather be improving the lives of patients and families so that's another big key for me is can we build you know, online platforms that allow these processes to be more efficient and effective and really lead us from assessment to treatment as opposed to just doing this as something we have to do to get payer authorization.
0: Yeah, and and I think that I've I've lived that whole kind of chain of events as time has gone on, because I've I've been in the field myself for about twenty years and just watching how it's gone from you know we have to fit specific molds we have to do certain things and you're questioning is this the right test is this the right assessment is this am i doing the right things yeah. um and knowing where that come from i, I think that is a, a big piece to quality of care but so so you mentioned that you know the assessment platform brought us here but you've also been doing a lot of research around a specific tool. And that's the CFQL2. And I, I'd i love for you, first of all, to be able to explain the CFQL2, but I'd also like to just put in my own two cents is that this is a tool for quality of life that's been missing in the field. I know that it's been out there for a few years and that you've done your research on it, but understanding quality of caretaker and the the community experience and the autistic experience through treatment is something that we have not done a great job in the field on. So maybe you can give us a little background. Right.
1: Yeah, for sure. So at at the time I was at the Cleveland Clinic and I was helping to oversee uh, a lot of our programs there. And one of the programs was a diagnostic clinic. And in that clinic, our, our psychologists and providers were saying, Hey, you know, we like the tools that we have, but we'd really love to have something that takes a broader look at the child and family, their overall quality of life, life satisfaction, uh, wellness, you know, there's different ways to conceptualize this. But um, so we started working on the original CFQL, which, um, you know, child and family quality of life measure, which was really focused on can we inform early on in the diagnostic process this, and get this broader picture of what's happening with the family, the external support system, how people are generally feeling about the, the child, the family, and the environment. And so we built that measure and we were pretty happy with it in the sense that our clinicians were using it. They were using it to inform how they approach the diagnostic process. So I'll give you one example. We have a subscale on that that's called financial quality of life. And we're not interested in how much money people make or how you know what their socioeconomic status is we use that scale to understand are the financial aspects of life inhibiting or impairing in some way your overall quality of life and so when people fill that out our clinicians kept telling me hey we love that because it helps us to direct how we shape our recommendations for these families right if 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 We know that the family is already struggling financially we're not going to suggest that they raid their 401k to get early intervention. uh, You know a massive amount of early intervention, done. instead we're going to try to get them resources like social work or other people that can help them to access. um, Available resources leverage their insurance, etc, and so it changes the conversation in certain ways, another example would just be caregivers uh, quality of life scale so. If the caregiver is showing a lot a lower quality of life and more stress, then the, the diagnostic process became about not just helping the child, but helping the caregiver to reduce their stress. And same thing with the family quality of life, right? And same thing with external support. Can we provide more external environmental community resources for this family, right? So, what I loved about the original CFQL is it was helping the diagnostic process be much more holistic and useful for the family, right? Not just focusing on the diagnosis of autism, but the whole picture. So that was cool and we were excited by that. But when we started to use the original CFQL in intervention trials to see if it, if we could change quality of life, we were realizing that we wanted to revise it to make it more sensitive to change. And so the CFQL2 was really born out of the idea that number one, we could probably shorten the measure a little bit. And number two, we could make it more sensitive to change while we were doing that. So we added items to each scale to be more sensitive to change. And we really focused on trying to be as brief as possible with the overall instrument because we know families are already burdened with lots of other things they have to fill out. So we didn't want to add to the burden with a quality of life measure. That would seem like counterproductive. So that's kind of how we got to the CFQL 2
0: Yeah, and I mean, even those examples that you provided when you were talking about the financial quality of life. I I can almost immediately start thinking about, you know, what's the clinical implications of this? And how can I as a clinician modify some factors to be able to reduce some of those stresses? And that could be as simple as, you know, do I have a clinic-based service versus a home-based service so that, you know, the parent isn't constantly having to leave work to be able to be home and to be present during the service delivery. Um, It could be, can I do telemedicine um, to be able to enhance some of the parent training so that they can find those little gaps in their day instead of having to call out or, I mean, just thinking through small things. But after talking to so many families is that that stress issue, um, it definitely impacts the ability to care for their child and to be present for even one another or the rest of their family. What are the biggest things that you think that you found as going through this research study and starting to implement CFQ uh, CFQL2 now? What are the what are the things that it's like, wow, I didn't I didn't realize this? Or this needs to be pushed further so others start to really focus on this?
1: Yeah, great question. So the very first thing we found that was really eye-opening for us was. Even before the diagnosis, so remember, families are filling out the CFQL before they get a diagnosis, right? Whether that's autism spectrum disorder or some other neurodevelopmental disability or disorder. Um, We found that family quality of life was already more impaired in the kids that got the autism diagnosis than the kids with other neurodevelopmental disabilities, even before they got the diagnosis. So, this is telling us that there's something about these families with individuals with autism, where the family quality of life is breaking down very early in the process, very early in the child's life. And that tells us as people that care about these families that we need to intervene early at a much broader level, That it can't just be about improving the child's um, ability to function and their experience, but it has to be a broader than that. So that was really, It was difficult to see because it's like, wow, that's really not great, right? Because anytime you see something happening that early, that's a difficulty. It's not an awesome thing to find. But it was good to find it because then it allows us to then actually do something about it. So that was probably our first big finding. I think the other big finding was when we developed the CFQL2, we started to see that it was very sensitive to change and it felt like this could be a really useful outcome measure because it's so different than the other measures we typically collect either measures that are very specific around behavior and goals and objectives or even other standardized assessments that focus on core autism symptoms or adaptive function right or you know some kind of motor skill or whatever this felt very different so it felt like a really important add because if ultimately aba treatment or behavioral intervention more generally is effective it shouldn't just be changing the behavior of the child. It should really be changing the whole family and environmental milieu.
0: Yeah. And when you were talking about the, the younger children and the response of their family already coming in with those additional stressors, um, is, is part of that, the ability for us as, uh, as individuals to kind of say, you know, I can see other disabilities. Those are more apparent for me, so it's easier for me to conceptualize them. Whereas autistic and uh, a lot of social-emotional behavioral disorders, they're not as easy to be able to identify. So it's, it's that not visibly apparent conditions that it's like, okay, how do I navigate that? And it creates this constant stress of I'm not succeeding, I'm failing, or is this my fault? Or... Are are there psychosocial components to what's occurring that are that are kind of pushing that quality of life?
1: I think so. I mean, we don't have strong data on this, but my hypothesis would be that really part of the reason why we see lower family quality of life in autism and and also caregiver quality of life as well is that, uh, first of all, kids with autism can be a little variable and heterogeneous themselves over time. So that can be stressful for a caregiver and a family. Also, autism goes along with a lot of externalizing behavior typically, especially in younger kids, and that's very stressful on families. And then, like you said, it's not always obvious to other people. You know, I remember with my own son being in grocery stores when he was little, you know, there, there were certainly some people that were sensitive and caring, but there were other people that just thought we were bad parents, right? And that's very difficult to experience as a parent when you know you're not a bad parent, when you know you're doing your best. And, you know, I'm a psychologist, my wife's a behavior analyst. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of funny, but, you know, it is challenging for families when they experience that. So I do think there's these psychosocial factors that are really reducing family quality life early in the process. And it's our duty as providers to first recognize that. And secondly, to try to do what we can to improve that uh, and reduce caregiver stress and reduce family stress and improve family cohesion, and also bring all the resources to bear for that family.
0: Yeah, and I mean, even as you're describing all this, the idea of not having a holistic system of care seems wrong. Like, yeah, we have to be able to assess every part of that child, every part of that family dynamic. And historically, when treatment planning occurred, It was always about looking what skill deficit. It was always looking at what behavioral excess. And there wasn't a lot of looking at what is the complete ecology of the family? What is their response to treatment? How do I tailor my treatment plan to make sure that I'm not overwhelming all the participants in the care model? With something like a quality of life survey, I would imagine A is that there'd be a bunch of waves during treatment. There's going to be ups and downs. When you initially start having somebody in your home doing care all the time or having to change your whole life to be able to get schedules, that's got to be a a stress. It's got to be something that's going to change the QOL initially, but it should start coming down and treatment should be focused on it. What have you seen for treatment recommendations as you went through this? that maybe were directly affiliated to the CFQL2 results that you said, you know, I saw providers start to do this differently during their treatment?
1: Right. No, this is a great question. So a couple things here that you brought up. Number one, I agree with you. It's almost like a response burst in the beginning. You're going to see some reductions in quality of life just because of the disruption that care provides, you know, getting the right care in place does cause some disruption to the normal family rhythms. So so you're totally right about that. And we have to be careful not to overinterpret any one data point, right? So we have to make sure that we're collecting data over time. And that's one of the nice things about having an online system is we can collect data more frequently so that we're not just uh, a prisoner to one data point every six months or something like that, right? Um, But no, to, to to answer your other question, we do see changes right here. So for example, if we see that caregiver stress is going up and up and up, Then one of the things providers can do is they can actually, you know, reduce the amount of expectation on the caregiver. And we can say that verbally just to caregivers, you know, we don't expect you to be able to follow through on every single program that we're running here. We don't expect you to be able to do perfect differential reinforcement all the time. And so setting reasonable expectations and then resetting reasonable expectations over time can reduce caregiver stress, number one. Number two, when you see family cohesion problems, you can bring in maybe a sibling into the mix and start to work on how, you know, improving interaction patterns in, in between uh, the person with autism and their siblings. You can do more parent training. In fact, one of the things I really hope comes out of some of the, the guidelines and standards that are being generated by different groups here is that we need more effective parent training strategies here that don't just burden the parent with, hey, now you're the primary person providing care, but instead actually empower the parent to feel more comfortable that when something does occur, they know how to handle it appropriately and they know how to manage uh, sibling interactions or they at least know how to to handle with particular situations that might arise that are being dealt with in more direct therapy context. So um, we've definitely seen a lot of that before And then the other big thing I would say is if you see lower external support quality of life, that's a really big trigger to, hey, we've got to bring in extra resources for this family and make suggestions. So I'll just give you a personal example here. Our family really benefited from a suggestion that we start going to the local Jewish community center um, to access some of their resources. My son goes swimming there. He uses the walking track in the wintertime you know, just bringing in those resources, it sounds really trivial, but it was a huge quality of life difference for us. So, Mm -hmm. a lot of these things occur over time, and that's why we recommend getting the CFQL at multiple time points so you can really try to understand what the family needs.
0: Yeah, I mean, just that idea of resources is that we don't know what we don't know, and without having that conversation, that dialogue, looking at a needs assessment, understanding where somebody is in their therapeutic journey, It's like, what resources do I even recommend? One of the benefits I see of having kind of pretty regular use of a quality of life measure like this is the ability to increase communication. I mean, you mentioned parent education, but I think it's also just the awareness of, you know, this this might be what you're helping me to understand as a parent right now, but I'm not there yet. So let's, Talk about how we can shape things so I can start to move in that direction. Right. Um, have you seen the, the clinical impact? Because as clinicians, is that as a behavioral scientist, is that oftentimes is that we're we're a little bit rigid in kind of how we approach things historically. I think we're getting better, but historically, it's no, this is the behavior plan. We have to follow it. You're not going to see the results unless you do A, B, C, exactly as I'm saying. But I will say, you come into my house, and I'm a BCD as well, I can't do that 24-7 either. And I'm going to be honest about it. It's, yeah. it's tough. So you have to be able to work with a family. Do you see clinicians that are using this tool start to change maybe their conceptualization a little bit? Do you see any change on the clinical end?
1: Yes, definitely. I I think it's partly because of what you mentioned that there's been a zeitgeist change in the field to be more holistic and understanding, but also the tool itself can direct people to that. So like I said, if you're seeing changes in quality of life in different areas, it can direct the clinicians and open the clinician's mind a little bit about how they're delivering care, either in office or in home, Um, but particularly in home, right? Because that's where things get really chaotic sometimes. And it's where it's really hard for parents to, um, you know, be able to provide what they might expect themselves or what they might feel like the provider is expecting of them to do. You know, I remember when people first came into our home to provide therapy for my son, like you said, Jeff, it was really hard to live up to my own expectations, little, you know, let alone what I thought other people's expectations were for me too. Uh, I think that one of the things I always talk to providers about in these contexts is, look, your goal is to be effective here. And if you want to be effective, then we have to be less rigid about exactly how we try to address goals and objectives and more flexible about how we enroll everybody in moving in the same direction. And even if that movement is slower initially, that's okay, because having everybody moving in the same direction is the goal. And so a lot of it is about setting parental expectations, helping parents to understand that you don't hold some unrealistic expectation for them, Um, helping them to see how they, they can make incremental progress in what they do want to address themselves, and being understanding that there's going to be periods of life and periods of time for parents where they can't do very much. And that's okay, you know? We're going to be there helping them along the way anyway, you know? Um, So, yes, we do see that the measures themselves help to broaden people's pictures of the situation. And I think that's one of the beauties of a really well-done assessment, honestly, even with standardized instruments, is that if you have the right measures measuring the right domains, you can get a much clearer snapshot of what's really happening here. And then you can use that snapshot to guide your own behavior as an interventionist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, I think that's a good uh, bridge to, to my next question is that we've spoken about, you know, the clinical utility. We've spoken about the parental buy-in, the ability to kind of bring people into the clinical decision making and make sure they have a voice. But there's also on the the funder end. As far as you know, there's there's right now more of an emphasis on I want to see some of these clinical outcomes. I want to know what I'm paying for as a funder is actually generating results. And we haven't landed on all of those answers as a, as a field. and because the care is so individualized, I don't know that that's going to happen anytime too soon. But quality of life seems like an indicator that should be evaluated from the funder perspective. Have there been any sort of conversations you've had on that aspect to understand, you know, how are, how are you all evaluating this?
1: Yeah, Yeah, well, we have had a lot of conversations with payers. And um, I think the good news here is, is that payers are understanding that they need to take a more holistic approach. Maybe not every single one, but a lot of them are. Um, So that's good news for the field. I think the other thing is that we're trying to do by building a platform that has the CFQL To but also other measures of other domains of functioning is by having a platform like that that makes things easier on the workflow for the clinician, but also provides this more holistic data for the payer, that ultimately it'll get us to value-based care in a more effective way. And so my my worry about value-based care has been: you know, value-based care is really about quality over cost, right? And so I think we can all imagine that the payers are going to be mostly focused on cost. And as providers and people that really care about these families and individuals, we're gonna focus a lot on quality. I think the nice thing about a good assessment platform that has multiple constructs, multiple domains being assessed, is that we can allow the payers to say, hey, there's ways for us to look at quality here that is much more holistic, much more useful to the child and family, and that allow us to feel good about the cost that we're providing, that we're you know that we're paying out, because we're getting our, our bang for our buck. We're getting the quality here, and the child and family quality of life is one example of where when we see movement on that, well, that's big because whatever cost you're providing, at least you're seeing movement in a very holistic, very uh, important area. I mean, we all want our quality of life to be better, right? I you know I I might not be a great social communicator all the time. So it'd be great if I could move up a few points in social communication, but it'd be really great if I could move up a few points in my overall quality of life, right? Absolutely. So so having a platform that allows payers to look at quality more holistically, I think will drive us towards a much better representation of value-based care than maybe we would have if people were looking only at one or two sort of less holistic areas.
0: Yeah. And, and I might be making a, a, a leap here, but I mean, there, there have been studies that have looked at the, the quality of somebody's behavioral health and the reduction in medical expenses over time because of that. So having a quality of life measure that's looking at these inherent stressors is probably cost savings. Um, it's gotta have something to the bottom line of, of the funder's ability to be able to provide more access to care or whatever it is they need to be able to do. So, I mean, it makes sense. Um, I have a, another question, just more on the function, I guess, of how the, the tool is delivered. It It seems like it's focused around the family as a questionnaire. does it does it broaden is there does it bring in community as far as the the survey does it does it at points bring in the autistic individual or the person who's coming in uh, maybe because it's pre-diagnostics the the self-referral uh does it does it create that opportunity
1: right so so right now our child and family quality of life second edition has seven subscales um so there is a it's filled out by the informant, which is typically the parent, oftentimes a mom, but sometimes a dad. Um, And um, it has these seven subscales. So the first subscale is child quality of life. And so those questions really are much more narrowly focused on the child and their experience. The second subscale is family quality of life. So that is obviously focused on the nuclear sort of the the immediate home environment. the third subscale is the caregiver, and the reason why we broke that out is because we obviously know that the caregiver is going to be a big element of the family, but there's also special caregiver stresses that we wanted to tap into, right? Uh, the fourth subscale is financial, and again, like I said earlier, we're not interested in the household income or you know how you know uh, what's the socioeconomic status or something like that. What we're trying to figure out there is is, you know, how do people feel about the financial quality of life in relation to this particular situation around their child's diagnosis um, and their difficulties? Um, the um, The fifth uh, subscale is called external support. So this is getting to your question a little more directly. That subscale is like, let's look at the external environment beyond the nuclear sort of family environment or situation. Um, the household situation. Let's get to that that next level, right? The the systems around the family um, and how you access those systems in your community and your environment. The sixth subscale is partner relationship. Now, not every uh, informant parent is going to have a partner relationship. So if they don't, they don't have to fill that one out. But if they do, we wanted to know about that a little bit, because first of all, it helps us to understand diagnostically whether or not we should, you know, make recommendations around, um, for example, couples therapy or um, try to provide supports around that relationship. Uh, Also, it's just another stressor that our caregivers experience. And so maybe there's ways that we can support the family around that. Um, And then finally, the last one is coping. And the idea is there is we wanna understand in a sensitive way when coping breaks down. And if it breaks down, Um, That's a real, that's sort of a four alarm fire situation, right? We've got to really change our approach, our tact, take a different tact with this family and either bring more resources to bear or different resources to bear on that situation. So we are trying to assess things beyond. Now, we've developed some versions of the CFQL2 for adults uh, as well. And we also are starting to develop uh, uh, a self-report version. We don't have those available right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The way it's administered is through our online system, the clinician selects the measures, so the CFQL2 can be one of those measures, and then they're automatically sent to the parent, typically in this case, and the parent completes those measures online, they can use their iPhone or whatever uh, tablet, computer to complete those, and then once they're completed, the clinician gets notification that they're completed and they can go into our system and look at the
0: results. I mean, it seems like there's such vast utility for this assessment, um, which oftentimes means that there needs to be additional training. There needs to be a real kind of uh, value enhancement to be able to kind of understand how to be able to take each component and utilize it in the treatment planning process. Um, So it doesn't sit on the shelf like some of the other assessments have historically, where it becomes like, I do it because I have to, um, where this has so much utility. So what is it? I mean, do you have training events coming up? Do you Are there places where clinicians, families could go to kind of get a better understanding of uh, what the CFQL2 offers?
1: Yeah, for sure. So we have done trainings for different groups and we're always open to doing more trainings. But we've done, I just did one a, about a month or so ago. Um, we also in our online system have um, auto-generated interpretations and recommendations from the cfql that helps the clinician to more quickly see exactly how that scale would be interpreted and used in a clinical context. Um, and then, you know, we also have manuals for our measures and so we're always happy to, to talk to people and offer up not only the instructions for using this the measure, but also what we know about the measure and how it operates and what kinds of ways in which it can be used to modify
0: clinical practice. Okay. Yeah. And I I would imagine is that anybody who's looking at this tool should take advantage of each aspect of what you're offering in the training protocols and and on on the interpretations. It gives you that framework, that guidance to be able to start from. Um, I do have one last question and uh, and I I appreciate all the information you've been able to provide today, Tom. I'd love for you to be able to kind of, you've been in the field for a while. You've worked with trying to understand the family experience for so long. If you were just to give some global advice to parents as they're looking at maintaining a a high quality of life or just maintaining and and persevering through challenging times of the process, what would you be saying to them um, as they're navigating all of this that's being thrown at them from treatment to time management to stressors to -to day-to-day life?
1: That's a great question. I have a few answers to that. So some, some things more, more specifically is like, find things that you and your child like to do on a daily basis. A lot of times people like to look forward to like some event way into the distant future. But like, if you can find something you enjoy doing every single day, that's really going to help your quality of life. So for my son and our family, what it is, is we go for walks in the nature area near our house. We also, my son loves to eat popcorn at night. So we, we make we make a ritual of him getting his popcorn and he eats it if he if he if we're outside or sitting outside or something, he'll you know, hopefully sit with us otherwise we might sit with him in his room. Uh, give us some time together even though my son's not speaking. Um, it gives us time together and that's sort of a daily thing is really important. I mean, a, a couple of other practical things I would say is don't spend too much time on the Internet. Um, you know the internet can be useful for information purposes, but it can also be a, a rabbit hole that you don't want to go down. Um, so just be really careful about your internet behavior uh, around autism and particularly around behavioral intervention and ABA. Um, the other thing I would say is um, generally try to develop support systems that you can rely on, whether it's family, friends, relate uh, other relationships you have, activities, community centers. The more of those you have, the less likely that some change in your family, some disruption, some negative event is gonna be able to totally throw you off, right? We wanna build resilience. So that, those are really important as well. I would say, you know, continually set goals for yourself and for your child, but make them realistic, make them smart and monitor those goals just like we do in ABA, monitor them for yourself psychologically, emotionally, and, you know, try to keep a broad perspective on life. My son makes very slow progress, but he does make progress. And seeing that progress really lifts our spirits. It helps us as parents to be more effective with him. And I think that's probably generally true for a lot of families.
0: Yeah, I, every time I have these conversations, it uh, it kind of astounds me. The fact that the advice that we're providing kind of spans the entire population. It's not just for somebody who has an autistic family member. It's everyone should be adhering to that same advice. I, I always have to take a step back and be like, all right Jeff, am I doing this with my family? Am I doing it right? Like but it's it's taking that breath and reassessing and evaluating and remembering those core points. and I appreciate you kind of making those again because um, I think they're just ways to live right Um, and I think it's a good a good way to kind of create that foundation but thanks so much Tom I appreciate you coming on Um, and there's so much that I think that families are going to learn clinicians are going to learn from this process and you're you're really adding to the field so thank you again
1: yeah appreciate it if anybody wants to contact me just email Um, but I really appreciate you having me on Jeff and This is a wonderful thing that you're doing. So thanks so much.
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.